The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight, all the people with four-wheel drive cars, and those of you who are brave without the four-wheel drive cars, <laughs> glad you made it. And uh, as you know, a lot of you know, we've been working through these 16 steps. It's really, it feels, you know, can feel a little bit artificial. Whenever we articulate a natural process, right, because the mind, both the deluded mind that constantly ends up, you know, at war with life and at war with the moment and at war with experience, and the wholesome mind that is putting down the burden. Whatever the mind does is a natural process, right? When we're really neurotic, that's a natural process. When the mind is releasing, that's also a natural process. So the 16 steps, the Anapanasati Sutta discourse, I made some copies for those of you who don't have a printer at home. We've been having this cheat sheet for these 16 steps um, in the weekly email, those of you who are on the weekly email list, that, um, it's right there. You can print your own copy, but if that's not convenient, feel free to take a copy up here after the program. Right? These 16 steps is this conceptualized articulation of a natural process that happens when the conditions are right. And then what we're doing as a practitioner, right, We're not actually doing the awakening, but we're supporting the supportive conditions for that natural process to happen. Normally what we're doing, unconsciously, right, is we're supporting the continuation of cycling through stressful, you know, cycles of reacting to this and then reacting to the reaction and then reacting to the reaction to the, you know, we're, kind of replicating these cycles of reactivity over and over again, involving greed, wanting something to be different than it is, or aversion, not wanting something to be the way that it is, or delusion, distraction, denial, what's going on, am I doing it right? But one way or another, most of the time, we're, are, we're in these loops where the way the mind is relating to the present moment sets up more friction, more contraction, more tightness in the body and mind. And then the mind reacts to that tightness, and then it reacts to the tightness, and on and on. And that's called a day. (laughs) And then that turns to a week, and that turns to a lifetime. And that's what we call an ordinary human being. Somebody who's suffering, who doesn't want to suffer, who does all kinds of stuff to not suffer, but all that stuff we do to not suffer ends up causing suffering because the mind doesn't understand clearly what's going on. Do you know anybody who wants to be stressed out or suffering? No, we're all trying in our own inefficient ways to address stress, but we're not doing a very good job, (laughs) right? So, the way the Buddha sets it up is, okay, let's train the mind to be first and foremost really sensitive. 
and so a lot of the concentration side of the Buddha's instructions is to increase sensitivity and that's kind of hard to bear because we're still stressing ourselves out but now we're aware of it right and we can feel really trapped that sensitivity initially can feel really trapped like we're trapped like I'm, I can't stop myself from being an idiot you know I know I shouldn't do this I know I shouldn't think this way I know I shouldn't react to this I shouldn't crave this I shouldn't hate that but here I go again and again and again. But we need that sensitivity because we have that, that sensitivity allows us independently, right, not based, not someone else, following someone else's instructions, but independently see if we're going to hell or if we're going toward release. Right? We have to have that immediate feedback. Like, is the way the mind is relating planting seeds of more stress? Is the way the mind is relating right now leading to release? And so the 16 steps is the discernment, is the understanding that comes from a mind that's really been studying this for a long time. So we're at a tremendous advantage, right? The Buddha didn't have these maps that we have. So this map is of the 16 steps of mindfulness of breathing, anapanasati, Anapana just means in and out breath. Sati means mindfulness. Mindfulness of the in and out breathing, you could say. And remember that in and out breathing isn't the main object of awareness except for the first couple steps. Then it's more in the periphery and that we're using the rhythm of breathing in and out as a way of supporting the examination of different aspects of mind. And I'll go through that in just a minute as we get closer to finishing the 16th step. So in the next couple of weeks, we'll be competent masters, at least intellectually, of the 16th steps. And if nothing else, we'll have our cheat sheet. <laughs> so we can see that one map. And the Buddha taught different maps of understanding the mind. This is one, probably the most comprehensive in terms of the Buddha's meditation instruction. Right. So we're using this map so we don't have to figure it out on us on our own. And the first thing with steps one and two is we're training the mind to be wholeheartedly aware of a natural, ordinary phenomena of breathing in and breathing out. So fully present with that ordinary experience of breathing in, whatever you're paying attention to might be the feeling of the belly rising, feeling the sensations of the belly falling or the touching as the breath comes in and the touching as the breath goes out. But because I'm training my mind to be fully aware of that, everything else gets put down. So I've been talking about this now for six to eight weeks, I think, since September, this training. And nobody should imagine this is an easy training because our mind is in the habit of thinking about this, imagining that, remembering something, reacting to something, so to give it a simple task like to track the physicality of breathing in, it means it can't do all the other things it normally does because it's doing this with a fullness of presence, unwavering presence, not forgetting the sensations of breathing in through that whatever it takes you to breathe in, seven seconds, and then through the seven or eight seconds it takes you to breathe out. 
So we're learning to put everything else down. That's the big thing. It's not so much that being aware of the breath is somehow going to change our life, but putting down everything else will change your life. right? So you don't even need to do with the breath. The breath is just a very convenient mechanism, present moment happening, to take up this training of putting everything down. And there's a barometer. You'll see that the breath goes from its your ordinary way of breathing to more subtle, refined, generally shorter in and out breathing as you get some more continuity, more of that, more continuity of that full, unbroken, unwavering attention to that ordinary experience of breathing in and breathing out. So it's just a it's really just a trick to help the mind drop its normal flitting about thinking, worrying, planning, comparing, wondering, fantasizing, the endless mental proliferation. The Pali word for that is papancha. It's kind of nice. It sort of sounds like mental proliferation, doesn't it? Right? Papancha, the mind just doing what it does, what it's trained to do, which is just the endlessly one thing after another. So we pick up the training with real dedication. We don't give up. We start over. We connect and we sustain awareness with the breath. And then when we get enough continuity and we feel like we notice that the breathing rhythm has become more refined, more smooth, shorter, you know, not rough, not erratic, but more kind of like a just a subtle in and out. Sometimes it almost feels like it's disappearing. It's so refine, then the Buddha invites us to train the mind to be aware of the whole body as we're breathing in and out. And when we get good at that, to keep in mind the calming of the body as we breathe in and out. And so the first four instructions are all about purifying how the mind knows the body. And in particular, bodily sensations But really, body here means the five physical senses. It's just that for most of us, most of the time, the bodily experience of sensation is the most relevant of the five senses. Seeing, especially when we're meditating, is not such a big deal. Hearing, if you're in a relatively quiet place, is not such a big deal. Smelling and tasting, generally, when you're sitting in meditation, isn't such a big deal. But sensations is the predominant aspect of the body. So in Buddhism, often when we talk about the body, we're talking about the physic, uh, the uh, sensitivity to these five physical senses. Okay, And what we're training, whether you use these four steps or not, we all have to train the mind to relate to the sensitivity we have to the five senses with wisdom with kindness, so that the mind isn't disturbing these sensitivities. Because it's okay with what's being seen, it's okay with what's being heard, what's being smelt, what's being tasted, and what's being felt as sensation. Right? And how do we know the mind has made peace with the sensitivity to the five physical senses? a pervasive sense of calm, which is why that last step four is all about, as you're breathing in, 
train yourself to notice the calm because that's your barometer. That sense of pervasive calm is basically telling you that the mind knows how to be with the sensitivity of the body, these five physical senses, without reacting. In a way, this first, these four, first four instructions, healing the mind's relationship to the body, the five physical senses, is like landing with wisdom in our experience of being embodied. It's like, here I am on the planet in a body, seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, whatever the five senses are, you know, and I'm okay with it. I'm not reacting. I'm not needing the physical experience to be different than it is. How do I know? Because the mind-body experience is calm. It doesn't mean what we're seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, and hearing is perfect. It just means the mind's okay with it. So you still may have knee pain, but the mind's okay with those sensations. There still may be a disturbing buzz in the room, but the mind's not reacting to it. A strange smell, an aftertaste from your lunch, or whatever but the mind doesn't have a problem with what's being sensed through the five senses. So we're noticing the calm, like the calm's a barometer. When there's not so much calm, then we're invited, well, maybe the mind can be calm with sensitivity through the five senses. Maybe it can be okay. Maybe you have to go back to the third step, which is breathing in, fearlessly saying yes to the whole body. Breathing out, fearlessly practicing being okay with the sensations of the whole body. Right? Because it may take some more time there before you can really sense the calm. Until you feel like there's some real healing, the mind, body, they're okay together. The knowing mind is okay knowing the sensitivity through these five sense gates. That's what we call these uh, eye, hearing, I mean the seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, the five sense gates. Now, we're learning the map, so we're just kind of moving on through whether or not we had a good healing there or not. We go to the second, because we're taking the fall to learn the whole map. But when you're doing your practice at home, you could go wherever you want in the training, right? As long as you understand the first four instructions are about taking up the training, purifying how the mind relates to the physicality uh, or the sensitivity of the body. Right? Then the next set of four is all about healing, purifying the way the mind, the knowing mind, relates to the activity of the mind. So activity mind means the activity of perceiving, recognizing, the activity of feeling, like how something feels to me. I see something and there's a feeling associated with it. I hear something, there's a feeling tone associated with it. I touch something, there's a feeling tone. That's a mental activity. Perceptions, feeling tone, mental intentions to do something, to think something, right? Content, thinking mind. So all of that, you know, and anything else that's moving in the mind, that's mental activity, right? 
And the way we work with how the mind relates, how the mind knows mental activity is we purposefully notice the activity of joy. Then we purposefully notice a more refined happiness of ease. And when we get enough of the pleasant side of mental activity, then the mind, the knowing mind, is willing to notice all the mental activity in a dispassionate way, in a spacious way. Like because I've trained my mind to notice the joy and then later the ease, I'm actually okay noticing all the activity of the mind, even neurotic activity, even a little worrying here, a little reactivity there, a little nudgy thought, a little not wanting the ease to go away. I notice all this activity, but I don't really, I'm just willing to let thinking be thinking. So with that third step now in the second set of four, joy is the first one, noticing ease is the second one. The third one is with dispassion, with a sense of spaciousness, we just notice, oh yeah, there's mental activity. And as we're breathing out, yeah, there's mental activity. And that's okay. Can I be okay? Yeah. And it's amazing. But when we notice thinking, let's just say, let's call it thinking, but it's, you know, it's any kind of mental activity. When we notice it with dispassion, then finally it quiets down. Not because we want it to quiet down, not because we're making it quiet down, but because we're okay with it being whatever it is, it quiets down like a cat or a dog. You want it to quiet down, you try all the, but when you just give up trying to control your cat, eventually it just quiets down. You leave it alone long enough, it quiets down. This is, there's a lot of wisdom in this, like in so many ways in life. When all else fails, wait it out. How many, they're, they're actually realizing this. I don't know if you caught some of the newer research around cancer. Some of the doctors in the room, you can correct me if you want. <laughs> but as I understand it, you know, as they've done some long-term studies, they're realizing that a lot of these things that show up in the tests as, oh, you know, pre-cancer or actual cancer, that if it was just left alone, a lot of that, I mean, I don't know what portion, percentage, but some of that, just goes away on its own, doesn't actually need an intervention. Well, that's kind of interesting, right? Now, I'm not saying that, you know, that's a strategy to live a life, just the sort of hope problems go away. My marriage is a failure, but if I just leave it alone, it will get better. Well, maybe not. But, but with the mind, the difference is we're really bringing it in view it's a it's a powerful intervention to be really connected in this case with mental activity that's not a small intervention like to really see what the mind is doing the thinking mind the worrying mind the reacting mind but to be okay with it is a really powerful intervention in the mind the mental activity the unfolding of mental activity but it's not easy to do because if we went right to that instruction, so that's four, then there's joy and ease at six, so it's the seventh instruction now, right? 
If we went right to seven instruction, okay, there's the thinking mind, the thinking mind. We don't realize it, but there's some aversion. We're not looking at the thinking mind with equanimity, with dispassion. We're sort of like impatiently being patient with it. So that's why you really need to be intimate with the joy and let it mature so you're intimate with the ease. Because that changes the nature of the mind and heart when we really let ease, joy and ease in. It's like we have a, you know how it is when you have a really healing experience maybe with a friend or a lover and you really feel held or like you belong, you become a different person for a while because mostly we're a scared, reactive human being. But when we feel a lot of love, we feel different. I mean, I remember on my wedding day, you know, we just had a kind of simple wedding outside at Afton State Park. This is way back in 93. But um, but I remember, and it was just a few fa- friends and family, and I don't know, maybe 40 people, something like that. And uh, But, you know, because the way it works, everybody's paying attention to you <laughs> when it's your wedding. You know, and it, it was kind of a relaxed affair. And, uh, you know, people sharing in simple ways and wishing us well. I just felt held and lifted up. I mean, it, it felt literally like I was being held and lifted up by the love and good wishes of everyone and the community that was there. And so when we feel that goodness of joy and ease, we can tolerate the wildness of a thinking mind. It's really okay. And that hands off that non-reaction, the not being pushed around or the not personalizing the mental activity is exactly what diffuses it. You know, what tends to propel mental activity is the taking it personally. But because now the mind is relating to mental activity with a lot of dispassion, it loses its juice and it goes quieter and quieter. So then the eighth instruction is to train the mind while breathing in and out to to notice the quieting and the calming of mental activity. So here, the first set of four were calming how the mind is relating to the sensitivity of the body. Now we're calming how the mind is relating to thoughts. And that leads to the quieting of the thoughts. Here we purified how the mind relates to the body. Here we're purifying how the mind relates to mental activity. And that quiets the mind. And it's because the thinking, the mental activity is quieter the mind then, the knowing mind, can actually start to intuit the knowing mind. We can't really know the space of the mind. It isn't a thing. But we know there's a space of the mind. Like, can you really know the space of the room? Try to know the space of the room. You know there's space here, because all this is happening somewhere, and we call it here, right? So we know there's space, the space of now, the space of the room, 
but we can't actually like point to it. But we know it's here. With certainty, we can know the space of the room. And I could train myself, I could train my attention to not be transfixed on the activity that's going on in the room. But I could, it would be hard because it's subtle, but with some training, I could really get good at keeping in mind their space. And in the space, all this sound and sight and you know this activity is showing up in the space. But I could keep the space in mind. Like visual artists, like a painter, especially certain uh, traditions of painting, they keep in mind the negative space, it's called, right? The space of the canvas, not the brush strokes, but the space of the whole canvas. Laura's a landscaper. Maybe you do that in landscaping where you have a sense of the space and then you start placing, imagining different things in that space, but you don't forget the vastness, the openness, the unformedness of the space to play with. Because activity always happens in space. So this is a big step. I mean, everything's a big step in this in these 16 steps. Aware of the body, the sensitivity of the body, and training the mind to be okay. Aware of the activity of the mind, training the mind, the knowing mind to be okay. Training the mind to intuit the space of the present moment, the space of the knowing mind, and to appreciate its beauty, its sacredness, you could even say. And that, like the four steps there, is training the mind to experience, as you breathe in and out, the space of the mind. To gladden it is usually how it gets translated here. To gladden it is like to appreciate its goodness, its beauty. We're really sensing, intuiting the nature of the mind, the open boundless space of the mind. In Qigong, you know, we do a little Qigong here on Wednesday mornings because it really aligns with mindfulness of the body in some really beautiful ways. And I don't know if you know this about Chinese medicine and, you know, the roots in Taoism um, that Qigong comes out of, but there's this sort of earth and heaven, heaven and earth, right? Two aspects that are really essential in understanding kind of the underpinnings of Chinese medicine and Taoism. And the earth is like the truth of embodiment. And heaven sometimes is represented as an open bowl. But not the bowl, but it points to the space. Like heaven, like the mind as we've been talking about it. And you can check right now because we all have a mind or you could use the word heart, right? So, excuse me, where in your own subjective experience can you find an edge or a boundary in your mind? Like, oh, this is where my mind could go, but it can't go beyond that. Do you find any boundary or edge? Like when you sense the space of your mind right now, the space of your heart, it's boundless, isn't it? Is there any kind of edge to how you directly, right now, in your own subjective experience of your mind, do you find an edge or a boundary? 
No, it's just like space. Open, boundless, immeasurable space. Isn't that true? And in that space, thoughts show up, emotions show up, perceptions, images. But the space of the mind doesn't appear to have a boundary. So we're noticing that. We're gladdening that. We're really appreciating. There's something, uh, there's a, an intuition of freedom when we notice the space of the mind. That's that second step there where we're gladdening. We're really appreciating, like, it feels really right to keep the nature of mind in mind. It feels really healing in a spiritual sense, for lack of a better word. And then the appreciating of that really deepens, clarifies the nature of the mind. So we're really purifying this intuition of mind. And we're, we're purifying it of any remnants of claiming it as me or mine. Right? The nature of the mind, the space of the mind has no attribute. That's its nature, is to be attributeless, attributelessness. <laughs> Absent of attribute. <laughs> right? It's just what it is, the mind. And any claim to it as me or mine isn't the mind, right? So as we sense the mind, intuit it, as we gladden it, as we quiet it or let it sort of really blossom, reveal, express, then eventually the fourth instruction there is they usually translate it as liberate the mind or release the mind you know, as you breathe in and out, you really, and this is an insight, really experiencing or realizing the mind free of any selfing, any self-centeredness. You're sensing the underlying nature of the mind without it being, without the experience being contaminated by some idea that that's me or mine. It's just the mind, or just the heart, or just the way it is, you could even say. So it's a little taste of liberation in the direction of full liberation, right? Where the mind begins to intuit the nature of freedom in the mind, in the heart, the unconditioned, something that was always there but not recognized. But now it's beginning to be intuited. Now, there's still four more instructions, but the the next four instructions that we're going to talk about in the next weeks uh, until the end of the year are really about developing and integrating this insight that happens there at step 12, I guess it would be, right? Because then we have 13, 14, 15, and 16, which is really developing and and the, the understanding of letting go, like letting the freedom of the mind be. Letting go into the freedom of the mind. But you can't do that without realizing the freedom of the mind, developing the intuition of that freedom. We're not creating that freedom. That freedom's always there, but it's not being recognized. Because we're really obsessed 
with the drama that's being regenerated moment by moment by the mind's habit of reacting mostly to sense experience because we like it or don't like it. And we're really at this, the mind is stuck at this gross level of being sensitive to the five sense gates. And each time there's a sense experience, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, or a touch, there's liking or disliking, and I react accordingly. And that gross level captures, engages, captures the attention. And so the mind forgets everything else because it's obsessed with this drama. And all that liking and disliking is impactful because we think it refers back to me, to a me, to a self in a permanent sense, which is just an idea that experience refers back to somebody. But we don't have to go there. But that's the basic dynamic that keeps us in this gross, dense level of experience. So the 16 steps are really starting with the more gross aspect training the mind in the relative, the relatively um, nice conditions we have when we set up our sitting time. Quiet room, cell phone is off, dog is in the another space, friends know to leave us alone. We've got our 30 minutes, or we've got our 60 minutes, whatever you've been able to put aside. right? And we train ourselves, okay, yeah, there's still a body that's sensitive in these five ways, but yeah, I can train my mind more or less with some effort to be intimate with the body, but to be okay with the way it is. And when we get good at that, we feel a pervasive sense of calm in the body. Because the mind isn't having a problem with sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches. And then we go to the more subtle training, okay? There's still this flow of mental activity. Let me choose to pay attention to the pleasant end of that flow of mental activity, not to the problems, not to what, you know, the nudgy, unfinished business, which is where we tend to go, right? It's almost like we're a kid looking for the scabs to pick at. Why isn't this healing? We kind of go back to the old emotional dramas, right? Because that's juicy, because we have a self-centered orientation. But now, because we got these instructions from the Buddha, we feel the tug to go to think about our to-do list, to think about that difficult interaction, but we don't take the bait because we're, well, let's see if the Buddha knows what he's talking about. Let me, even though it's subtle, even though it's indistinct, let me train my mind to be aware of joy as I'm breathing in, to be aware of joy as I'm breathing out. So I get good at keeping that in mind even though it's not initially the predominant experience. But I get good at it. And then it matures to a more resonant ease. And then there's a lot of space in the mind, this passion. So just let it rip. Thoughts come and go, no problem. Thinking is just thinking. Everything can. Everything has permission, right, as I breathe in and out. Whoa, things are quieting down as I breathe in and out oh, I can intuit the space of the present moment. Yeah, there's activity of mind, there's activity of body. I don't have a problem with the activity of body or the activity of mind. So I'm going to notice, I'm going to train my mind now just to keep in mind the space of here and now, the space of the mind, the space of the knowing mind. Oh, 
this is really good. Really appreciate the silence, the stillness, the relative emptiness of the mind, heart, as I breathe in and out. Really let that endless, boundless nature of the mind be what's really predominant. That's the quieting, the stilling, the concentrating of the mind. So there's real a real sense of unity here. Because now we're looking, it's only our thoughts, mental activity, that creates a sense of division and separation. Duality, good and bad, like that's duality, what I like and what I don't like, me and you. All of that exists at the level of the activity of the mind. But see, with this third set of four instructions, we're not looking at the activity of mind. When we shifted from that, the, you know, the, the second set of four, to the third set of four instructions, now we're looking at the space of the mind. So we're not looking at duality. We're looking at unity. right? And we're looking at unity, keeping that in mind until any last subtle remnant of selfing, which would be a mental activity, taking it personally, claiming the silence and peacefulness as me or mine, that gets, that gets dropped because the mind is choosing to pay attention to the open, boundless, and empty space. So we don't get in there as a self to get rid of the self. You see, that never works. We notice the space, the actual nature, empty nature of the mind. And we keep that in mind in a full way until selfing drops away. And then we realize, step 12 is realizing that the mind is empty of selfing. We're basically noticing the nature of the mind when it's not being contaminated by selfing. Oh, this is the mind. This is the mind. So I'll leave it there so we can just... uh, have time for questions and discussion, and then next week we'll go to the last four steps. Like I mentioned, it's just uh, integrating the insight, deepening the insight of letting go. So what comes to mind? What questions do you have? Comments from your own practice that seem relevant or whatever about the practice or the tradition is coming to mind that you'd like to ask a question about or share about? So, uh, thanks for the talk. Maybe a little closer. Yep. Uh, one thing that I noticed during the, especially the the first thirty minutes, is that I couldn't move uh, through the steps as fast as you were instructing. In, uh, I mean, not just in this sit. I think generally it takes more time for me to move from the bodily sensations to the mental activities. Um, yeah. So if I want to do just thirty minutes every day, I I can barely reach. Yeah. To those. Yeah, and I mentioned this. I don't know if you were in the room. It was a couple of weeks ago, but remember, there's how we practice, and maybe once a month. Like if you really like this map, maybe once a month, just go through the sixteen steps. Let however it is be good enough. Don't worry about really accomplishing any of the sets of four, right? Just because that once a month set, you're just reminding the mind of the full map, right? But when you're training, 
when you're actually sitting, just let it be intuitive. Like when you feel like you're in a good place to move on, move on. But when you feel you're still learning, still it's still valuable what you're doing, then just stay where you are. And also, you don't always have to start at the beginning. You might There may be some days where the mind is really already quite settled. Like, because I've been practicing for 37 years, pretty sincerely, sometimes, a lot of times even, when I sit, I'll go right to the space of the mind. Because my mind has learned to recognize the space of the mind. So I can go right to breathing in, noticing the space of the mind. Breathing out, noticing the space of the mind. And then that might get disturbed, and then I might have to go back to an earlier place in the practice. That's okay. So it can be quite intuitive how we practice. Just follow your own nose, see what's skillful, right? But when we're learning it, it's good to kind of like do what we're doing this fall. And I know it can be driving some of you crazy, this sort of systematic, linear approach to learning the instructions. But it's really good that you brought up the question because remember, you're on your own. So once you kind of get the teachings, then you're on your own to kind of really learn what they're pointing to and to learn how to use the instructions in a way that's really helpful for you. And everybody's mind is a little different or even sometimes a lot different. So how you work with the instructions, how you learn to get what each of those instructions are pointing to, that's the key. So even when we move too fast through the list, like we're doing here when you come to Common Ground and we're working through you know, the whole 16 steps, and I'm trying not to make people sit too long because some of you aren't used to sitting. Like tonight we sat for 40 minutes or so. You know, Some of you aren't used to sitting that long, so it's not so easy. So I don't want to go to an hour because some of you, that would be too much physical discomfort. So you know, I'm rushing along a little bit. But that's okay. Just do the best you can so that you're really intellectually getting the map, and then at your own pace at home, you could bring the map to mind. And like, what is, what, I wonder what the Buddha, like in my actual experience, what is this instruction pointing to? What does he mean by breathing and experiencing joy? What is joy? Mark mentioned the word buoyant. Does that illuminate my own experience? Does that point to something in my actual experience? Lightness, you know, flow? So. That's why I use a lot of different words because one of those words might resonate and kind of illuminate, find your own way to the actual experience of joy in your mind. Thanks for that. Yeah, right behind you. Hi, I'm Amber. Um, <clears throat> I was just reminded when you were talking about the um, <laughs> that if your marriage is going poorly, you probably don't want to just let it go and sit there. Um but I do find sometimes that when I find myself hyper-focusing on a real problem that's happening in my life, whatever that might be, marriage or whatever, um, that keeping up with my practice as I've been doing this, it, putting it down and doing the practice even if it is for 15 minutes, five minutes, three minutes, sometimes just putting it down and not worrying about it, walking away from that emotional or physical, whatever it might be, even if it is like a physical project. Even I've found where if you're cleaning the house all day and you've got to get it clean because company is coming, sometimes you're just overdoing 
And if you just stop and put it down and take your practice, your seated practice or whatever, that it can kind of fix itself because you, I feel that then I go back to it with maybe a clearer mind or less attachment to it or I can look at it as an overarching thing rather than my problem I'm dealing with drudging through. So my practice by putting those things down can sometimes fix itself in a, at least for those 15 minutes. Yeah. No, and Amber, you're I think you're pointing to something really deep in um this path, you know, that the Buddha laid out for us. Because there's something deeply skillful about dying and being reborn. So every time, like Amber was saying, we put something down, then when we pick it back up, the mind, the heart is fresh, precisely because we were willing to put it down. And there's any number of ways to do it to sort of punctuate the ongoingness of the deluded, obsessive mind. You know, we have, hopefully, we should all have a bag of tricks. I mean, the obvious thing is, like I do often once or twice a day, is I lie down on my back and do a little nap slash deep relaxation, right? For 10, 15 minutes, something like that. Did it today. Wanted to do it a second time, but didn't quite squeeze it in. But there's something, and I see it as a kind of death. Like, I'm not thinking about my to-do list. I'm thinking about relaxing and dropping and putting everything down for a few minutes. And it can be just like taking your attention off the dramas and looking out the window. But really looking, really being in the experience of seeing so that this dies, you being obsessed about your to-do list, that dies, that person dies, and for a while you're reborn as somebody who's interested in the chickadees at the bird feeder. Right, and then you that dies, and you take rebirth as someone who has a to-do list. But now you've just been born. You're fresh. You're a baby with a to-do list, and you might understand the to-do list in a whole new way. Same with the marriage. Same with everything. Yeah. So it's a really deep point you're pointing to. Thanks for that. Yeah. Right behind you. We're working our way to the back of the room. Get ready, those of you in the back row. (laughs) Hi, I'm Meredith. Um, I haven't been here for a while, so I'm kind of just jumping in to this. But I really appreciated the guided meditation tonight and those instructions. And I found it really helpful. Um, Just come, Yeah, I've been having a lot of anxiety. And I think just the the step-by-step instructions I've, found I was able to be just really present and let go a lot of a lot of mental chatter and um, you know just let go in a way that I'm often not able to so I just I just really appreciated those instructions yeah and the you know the Buddha was very skilled in sort of his educational pedagogy because you know how it is, those of you who have kids or have been teachers, the Buddha could have said, don't do that, don't do this, stop doing that, you know. If you do that, you're screwed. And we, it wouldn't have helped. But he kind of invites us 
about what is good to do, right? And we can be led along. And that's the key is to sort of do the plant positive seeds. Don't worry so much about when the mind is doing what it shouldn't do. Just invite it to do what it should do. Keep emphasizing the positive. And that's what the 16 steps are doing. They're emphasizing what the mind can do. And if it can't do this because it's too subtle, then like we were saying a minute ago, back up to some a more gross part of the 16 steps where the mind can do that. And it find a little success. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, I want to pass it over here to Alyssa. Hi, my name is Alyssa. Um, I feel like I my ability to just watch a breath halfway in and halfway, or, you know, half a breath in, halfway, a breath halfway in and a breath halfway out is pretty limited. I mean, I can probably sit sometimes and wonder if I did that at all. So my question would be, is it, I mean, perfectionism could be getting in the way, you know, and, um, but my question is if I do feel constrained by that and I really feel like I've got a busy mind or, you know, just a lot of physical discomfort, is it better to keep coming back to this breath and really try to concentrate? Um, or is it better to kind of let the next thing happen? I mean, I, I guess I just want to avoid feeling distracted and like I'm on my own track thinking I'm doing meditation, but I'm really just trying to alleviate pressure in my life, you know? Um, so I guess, yeah, that's my question. Is it better to keep trying to discipline myself to the breath till I feel like I have some mastery or familiarity or is there a different approach that's more middle of the road? Yeah. Well, there are lots of different trainings to take up and the way in early Buddhism, which Kamagraun is in that lineage of early Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, there's a real array of skillful means that we're learning. So it's complicated and it's hard. This is a hard tradition to be a beginner because you're give, being given a lot of information, a lot of skillful means, a lot of tools, and you don't have much, we don't have much initially much competence with any of them. And it can be a little bit overwhelming. But, you know, eventually we get the lay of the land and the key is to start developing some competence with the tool that, for whatever reason, the mind is interested in and willing to do. But when you come to talks, you're going to get exposed. So when you're here, do what I would invite and encourage you to do what the teacher is doing. But when you're at home, do what your mind is interested in doing of the skills that you've been introduced to. Develop the competency. Start where you're interested, right? So the particular skill you're talking about is, is eventually is an essential skill to have. And some people's minds will get, you know, will have initial competence faster than other minds. And that's the skill to drop everything and to be aware of just one thing, right? It's just one skill. There are many. It's not necessarily the most important skill, but it is an essential skill to learn. The key is it's not a muscular move, right? So willpower is not the name of the game. 
with this. And if that's what we're using to pay attention to the breath, to the exclusion of everything else, we're going to lose. The name of the game is interest or curiosity. And so if you can't, through thinking initially, like thinking, well, this is kind of interesting why this is so hard. Like, honey, all I'm asking is, like, for that seven-second duration, can you keep the sensations of breathing in in mind? Can you be not forgetful of it? Good. Now let's try the opera from the beginning to the end. Cause, and to get really interested, like if it is hard, if you do, the mind zings off here and there, to get, well, that's interesting. Like what is it that's happening that causes the mind to lose that thread of continuity? What is it? What is so important about whatever the mind just went to? What was the trick that got the mind? Because like, it was a pretty strong resolve to keep this in mind, and yet I lost it. Well, that's interesting. So interest, real interest, like a pure interest, not a judgmental interest, or I'm going to beat this thing, I'm going to win kind of interest, but like I'm interested in the mind. I mean, God, what is going on? This is curious. And remember, there's a lot of good things about the breath that sort of makes it a good training ground, but it doesn't have to be the physicality of breathing in and out. That's just a convenient mechanism for learning about the mind in this systematic way. Most of that map of the 16 steps is really about learning about the mind, right? The breath is just a convenient mechanism that helps us remember to be embodied, that when we're doing this more subtle work, we haven't left behind the body. We're right here in the middle of our experience. And breathing in and out, when we're unaware, we're probably imagining that we're practicing and not actually practicing. So it's sort of a good rhythm. But whole body awareness or even hearing can work as a primary uh, training object if the breath, for whatever reason, isn't working for you. But I don't suspect that's the issue as much as, like you suggested in your sharing, Alyssa, it's it's like um, we turn it into a battle and then we won't win. And then we get frustrated. So don't turn it into battle. Use some thinking like to help you find your curiosity about your mind. I just want to get to know like I mean it's sort of like we could it could be something as simple okay I'm going to slide my there's an edge here I don't know if you can see it Mary um, McCann built this a long long time ago she put a different kind of wood here that's darker I could slide my finger from one edge of this small piece of board all the way to the other edge and it's sort of like interesting like can I keep this touch in mind Now I'm asking not to think about it, but just to actually feel the physical contact. And when we really do that, then the next step would be like, and now when I'm being aware of it, can I be aware of it fully, like with real interest, so that there's no space in my mind on the on the edges to be thinking about anything else, like what do they think about me doing this weird thing? <laughs> Like there's no room for any other mental activity because I'm just just knowing this touch, right? And then we so there's any number of ways to do it, you know, with your kids too. 
and when you're playing blocks with your little one. You know, like, can I just be in the activity of this interaction without leakage, without sort of trying to do another thing at the same time? And that's the thing. We can play with this in all kinds of little places. This is what we mean by connecting and sustaining. Vitaka, vichara. These are two um, really essential mental muscles. Connecting and sustaining. Keeping something in mind in an exclusive way. Then with the third instruction, we're making it more inclusive. But the, the initial training of being fully here, it's useful to use an exclusive object. And if you look at religious, spiritual traditions, there's any number of ways this has been done through ritual, through mantra, chanting, singing, drumming, dancing, different kinds of visualizations. I mean, humans have been finding ways to develop this mental muscle. Because the trick is, when I do this fully, completely, with some continuity, the mind drops everything else. And that's already a mystical experience. It's sort of an initial mystical experience to put everything down. Because then, in that moment, as I'm sliding my finger across, I'm not a man, I'm not a human being, I'm not here or there or anywhere. The self, in a funny way, disappears because there's just touching being known. Because my attention has been trained to be fully with the touching, I can't be conceiving of being Mark in front of a room of people doing this because I'm fully in the awareness of the touching. So we learn something profound in terms of spiritual practice that all of that conceiving can be dropped temporarily just by developing that exclusive continuity of present moment awareness with whatever. you know, The breath is just one convenient training ground for that. Ooh, it's after 8.30. Got to leave it here. So just take a few seconds to let go of the words. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. Perhaps to sense the space of the present moment. And letting it be. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.